And as you turn to the text and you read the heading, you might think to yourself, what is an Amnon? <laughs> and why are we studying this passage? And the reason is, uh, I was in a preaching class this past fall, being that one of the goals of RTS is to equip students not just to preach the greatest hits of the Bible, John 3.16, Roman 8, Psalm 23, to be equipped to preach the whole thing. And so our assignment for the course, professor took second half of 2 Samuel, divided it up, alphabetical order, each text to a person, and this is, in God's providence, what I was given. Uh, In order to make sure that we're able to track with the reading uh, of this text, I want to make sure we know who all the characters are. Obviously, King David, we know him. We also know David's son, Absalom, probably. He's one of David's sons. But we may not know about David's oldest son, Amnon. Uh, In the previous passage, Amnon uh, brutally mistreated his sister, half-sister Tamar. Uh, Tamar, at this point, is out of the picture. And our text takes place two full years after that incident happened. 2 Samuel 13, we'll be reading verses 23 through 39. This is God's word. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young men who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said. So it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur, and he was there three years. 
And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, since he was comforted about Amnon, since he was dead. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, your word says of itself that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Your word also says of itself that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And Lord, that goes for even this text. Uh, A strange text, a text that strikes us as hopeless, full of nothing but despair, and yet you and your kindness have given it to us that we might know it and believe it and apply it. But we need your wisdom to do that, and so we pray that you would send your spirit to us to enlighten our eyes, hearts, and minds, that we might understand it rightly, react to it rightly, and apply it rightly. Be with us now to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One interesting thing about my family is that on my mom's side, every single woman at one time or another worked in elementary education. Starting with my mom's mom, and then her two daughters, and then their three granddaughters. Uh, Every single woman, including a couple in-laws as well, at one time or another worked teaching elementary age children. If you've talked with anyone who works as an elementary school teacher, you'll probably hear them say that it is really hard. And you say, well, yeah, of course, you know, you're, you're kind of working as their, you know, outsourced parent for seven hours a day, managing them, making sure they stay in line and teaching them, you know, basic math and all of that. No joke, it's hard. But oftentimes I hear them say that actually, no, 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 it's not the kids that make the job hard, it's the parents. <laughs> The reason that, I think, is that oftentimes there are many parents who will not face up to their children's need for discipline. And that's an ironic thing because when you think about it, little Jimmy's mom, if she stays home full time, it's her job to discipline Jimmy, right? To spank Jimmy, to put Jimmy in time out, uh, to pull over the side of the road and give Jimmy a talking to. And yet when she finds out that Jimmy needs detention because he was shooting spitballs, she can't cope. (laughs) A story on the same lines, but much more sobering. There was a college lacrosse player from the University of Virginia. He was found guilty of killing his girlfriend. Uh, He and his girlfriend had both had too much to drink one night. We hours of the morning, they got into an argument. It escalated, ended with her dead. Now, in the ensuing trial, the young man's name was George. He admitted to laying hands on his girlfriend. The facts were relatively clear. And so George was sentenced to 23 years in prison. No chance of parole. 23 years. He would have been out when he was about 45. A little while later, George's mother Marta went on the news and said that the punishment was too strict. She said it should have been downgraded to involuntary manslaughter. She said her son's girlfriend's death was, quote, a drunken accident. Now you hear that story and I think all of us have this gut response of, well, that lady needs to get a grip. It's easy to see a man on the news you never met. He's convicted of murder, sentenced to 20 years, and say he's lucky he didn't get life. But at the same time, I hope we would realize that to see your child commit a crime and appropriately assess their guilt takes a great deal of courage. Sin is easy to judge. Sin is easy to condemn in the abstract. It's much harder to condemn in the ones that you love. 
Well, King David faced the same trial in a certain way that George's mother Marta did. At the beginning of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, King David's firstborn son Amnon had committed a heinous crime. He had violated his sister. The text says David gave the right emotional response. It says he was very angry. And so far, so good, because we should not be stoics when it comes to, to, to reacting to sin. We should be bothered by sin. We should be angry, especially by sin of this kind. It's good to be angry at gross sin. Obviously, the problem, though, is that being angry is as far as David went. David took no action. David took no decisive action. He minimized Amnon's sin. And as we will dig deeper into our text, we'll see that minimizing sin often has dramatic consequences. In fact, God would have us know that because suffering multiplies when sin is minimized, God's people must deal with sin. But as the text shows us, dealing with sin is easier said than done. The first thing we see in our text is simply the great difficulty of dealing with sin. And what is that difficulty? As we stated before, David was not indifferent to Amnon's crime against Tamar. Verse 21 says David was very angry, but that was it. At this point, it's helpful to understand the legal backdrop behind David's inaction. The Torah states that the penalty for the crime that Amnon had committed was that Amnon would pay 50 shekels of silver. Now, for most people, 50 shekels of silver is a lot of money. When you're the king's son, 50 shekels of silver is chump change. Additionally, if the woman was willing, the man who committed the crime of what was required to marry the woman whom he had taken advantage of, but of course the Torah would forbid that marriage in this case. So David was to some degree in a bind. But there was one more solution that David could have taken. Leviticus 20.17 states that for the specific crime Amnon committed, he should have been cut off. And now you see what God's word would have required David to do, which was to exile his own son. As king, David was required by the Lord to send his firstborn son into exile. And verse 23 states that, again, it has been two years later since Amnon violated Tamar, and David has not carried out God's word. He has not done what God's word required him to do as king of Israel. And what had happened to David? Because if you think back to David's life earlier, you will remember a man who was very energized to see justice done. So much so that when he was being pursued by Saul, King Saul, on two separate occasions, David had the chance to kill Saul, really in self-defense, and yet he wouldn't. He refused to lay his hand against the Lord's anointed. On the other hand, now he has the rightful duty of executing justice against a criminal, and he abstains. And you can imagine all the ways David might have rationalized this passivity, right? Maybe he told himself that punishing Amnon won't help anyone. Punishing Amnon won't help Tamar. It wouldn't be good for the nation of Israel to send their crown prince into exile. It would just lead to gossip. And maybe there was one more thought bouncing around his head concerning his passivity and how he justified it. Maybe David reflected on his own past against his own checkered personal life and he asked himself you know who am I to punish Amnon for his sin for this sin specifically after all I did the same thing you could say Amnon learned his behavior from me 
And that's how we see the real difficulty of dealing with Amnon's sin for David would have brought David face to face with his own sin. Dealing with Amnon's sin would have forced David to relive the gut-wrenching and guilt-inducing memories of his own sins against Bathsheba and against Uriah and the fallout from it. And it probably would have invited a lot of scorn. Who is David to punish Amnon for this sin? Do you think you're in a position, David, to punish Amnon? Do you think you retain that sort of moral authority? And we see this difficulty of dealing with sin one more way. And let's fast forward to the end of the the passage. Do you notice the curious way the passage ends? Look at verse 37. Absalom goes uh, to flee to Talmai. Now, Talmai is Absalom's maternal grandfather, his grandfather on his mom's side. David, meanwhile, is mourning for his son, for Amnon, who has been killed. And then verse 38 says, Absalom stayed where he was for three years. The picture we see is gridlock. Because Talmai is not going to just hand over his grandson. Nothing can be done. A military invasion would probably be overkill. Besides, that's not a battle David probably would have felt up to facing anyway. So what does David do? Verse 39. He moves on, it seems. He's comforted. He wants to be reunited with Absalom again. And to a certain degree, that seems reasonable. You know, would you not want to be reunited with any child you had? Even a child that had done the things Absalom had done. To a certain degree, that makes sense. But would it have been just for the king to let a murderer go free? No, it would not. But that's what David wanted to do. Because to execute justice for his son, the murderer, would be too difficult. Dealing with that sin would have been too difficult for David. And to one degree or another, I think we've all been in David's position to a certain extent, right? Maybe we've had uh, a friend or a child or a parent who was caught up in some sin and it was ruining their lives and we got up the gumption to speak to them about it. And that was a really hard thing and we called them out and we implored them to repent and they didn't listen. And then we spoke up again and again and they still didn't listen. And at some point, While telling ourselves that it was in the interest of prudence, we really just didn't feel like fighting that battle anymore. We grew weary. What's the use? What's the use of sticking up for what's right when all it causes is friction and heartache? Now, the New Testament gives us great encouragement to endure in this difficult work of dealing with sin. Galatians 6, the chapter of the Bible that's very concerned with this issue of Christian accountability, says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do you see the promise there? If we endure in the difficult, the painful duty of dealing with the sins of others, we will reap. We will reap. And of course it's in due season, which normally is not as soon as we would like. But God promises a great reward for faithfulness and honoring him. Now, David grew weary, as we said, in doing the difficult work of dealing with sin. And we'll see that Absalom fell prey to a different sort of temptation. David might have considered himself unworthy or unfit to deal with Amnon's sin. But Absalom considered himself qualified when he should not have. And so secondly, in our text, we see the illusion of dealing with sin. The deception of dealing with sin. 
you're already familiar with the main narrative of the back half of 2 Samuel, it's easy to construct kind of a, a simplistic, two-dimensional uh, picture of Absalom in your mind. You imagine him with the long hair, of course, and maybe you imagine him dressed in black, and uh, maybe he has kind of a sinister voice, and he's walking around brooding, and maybe carries a red lightsaber. No, I'm just kidding. What do you but you look at you, you, this image of Absalom that you construct, you look at him and you say, oh, clearly that guy is evil, he's up to no good, don't trust him. But don't forget where this evil of Absalom started, right? In the text, we meet Absalom two years prior. His sister is violated and nothing is done about it. And so what do we see in our text? We see a young man approaching the king and maybe he's convinced that there is no justice in Israel. At least there won't be unless he takes action himself. <coughs> Look at the way Absalom carried out his plan to kill Amnon. Look at what he says in verse 28. This is really striking. He says, Do not fear, have I not commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. Now if you just pick that, those words out of the text and read it, you might think that was God speaking. Because God has said pretty much the same thing previously in Scripture. Listen to what he says in Joshua 1.9. God is commissioning Joshua to continue the invasion to take the land of Canaan. Listen to the parallel. The Lord says to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. That sounds similar. Now some have suggested, and they've seen that parable, and they think that in this case, Absalom is flat out mocking the word of God. His character is so degenerated that he's willing to just openly mock God's word in this kind of twisted quote. But I think Absalom is doing something else here. I tend to think Absalom, to a certain degree, thinks he is God. He's under the illusion that he is qualified to do God's work of executing justice to kill Amnon. He's been deceived into thinking that he is as wise as God and is capable of carrying out justice. But of course, there's poison in the water, right? Why does God punish evil? Because God is just. God punishes evil because he loves justice. And Absalom might have thought that was his motive, justice, but deep down, what was it? Verse 22 right before our text, says, Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon. And what we see and what follows is how that hatred of Amnon plays out. Hatred blinds us and makes us think we are doing good when really we are doing evil. Absalom's after revenge. And we have to admit that to some degree we like a good revenge story. If you think back to all the books you were made to read in high school, you'll realize that a lot of them were revenge stories. Good many of them. Hamlet, Count of Monte Cristo, movies like True Grit. It's a good movie. It's a good revenge story. And there are others. And we know that revenge is wrong, and yet deep down we love these stories, and we even root on the character oftentimes who seeks revenge. And why is that? feels just, right? feels like the world is being put right. Now you might say, well, sure, but how many people actually would carry it out? How many people would go as far as Absalom did? Fair enough. But I also think plenty of us have also wished we could do what he did at one time or another. Maybe we've been in Absalom's position. 
Maybe there's been a time in life where we had a conflict with someone and we hated them enough to wish that they were dead. And maybe we felt right in thinking that and we thought to ourselves, if this person was not around, this world would be a better place. And you feel just in thinking that way. But the story of Absalom from beginning to end is a sign that screams to us, don't try to be the judge. God is the judge. God is the jury. God is the executioner. And he hasn't shared that authority with us. God alone is qualified to deal with sin. Now, one other way we see this illusion of dealing with sin, look at the character of Jonadab. I didn't mention this before, but he is the nephew of David. Look at what he says. This is an interesting interchange. Verse 31 is this picture of just gut-wrenching pain and grief. And then there's Jonadab in verse 32 through 33. And and listen to what he says. Let not my Lord suppose they've killed all the young man. Absalom alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister. Now, therefore, let not my Lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. And you read that and you think, what is he trying to do? Is that comfort? No, that's analysis. Again, in verse 35, when it turns out that he was right. Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said. So it has come about. That is cold, hard analysis. You see, Jonadab was a shrewd man. It wasn't the first time he had offered up his analytical services for someone else to benefit from them. We didn't read this text, but if you look back earlier in chapter 13 and how Amnon dreamed up this uh, twisted scheme to take advantage of Tamar, you'll see it was Jonadab's idea. Jonadab gave Amnon the idea for carrying it out. One commentator, his name is Dale Ralph Davis, he's a former RTS professor of the Old Testament, uh, says something really striking when he says that the most dangerous man in the whole fiasco is Jonadab. It's not Amnon, it's not Absalom, it's Jonadab. And that should strike us because most of us, thankfully, are in the positions of Amnon and Absalom. And more than that, many of us, uh, if we are believers, if we have been regenerated and forgiven of our sins, we have escaped the worst consequence of sin that we've been learning about so much, the, the wrath of God. We've escaped that because we've been forgiven And the danger we might find ourselves in is that as a result, we become a bit numb to sin. Because we've escaped the worst consequences of sin, we become cold to sin. Sin doesn't grieve us as it should. It doesn't alarm us as it should. It doesn't frighten us as it should. We don't want to commit sin in our own lives, but on the other hand, it makes the evening news more interesting We're under the illusion that as far as our lives go, sin is under control. But as our sin, as our text shows, sin wrecks lives. And not only that, it also spreads. Sin is like a a gangrene that spreads and eventually poisons the whole body. And in this case, it started in David with his sins of adultery and murder, and it spread to his sons. And they followed his footsteps. You see, sin is deceptive and the way it deceives us into thinking that we can quarantine and sector it off in our lives. We can keep it relegated to our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own private lives, but before we know it, it has regained the upper hand. God's call to us is never to minimize sin, but to deal with it. 
But if we try to do just that, if we set out to deal with sin, we find still another more alarming reality. Lastly, we see the impossibility of dealing with sin. The impossibility of dealing with sin. There are many tragedies in this story. The young woman has her innocence taken from her, her life is ruined. The crown prince has been killed. A father and a son are alienated. We have neither reunion nor justice, but only gridlock. Painful, lonely gridlock. But beyond this, think about the timing. Because for its whole history, Israel has kind of been teetering on the edge. After the conquest of Canaan at the end of Joshua, Israel proceeds to go into this downward spiral. That's the book of Judges. And they cry out for a king, and God gives them that king. He gives them Saul, who turns out to be the wrong king. And then finally we get David. And we think all the pieces of the puzzle are in place. We have a man on the throne whose heart belongs to the Lord, who loves the Lord and is committed to doing his will in the country. And as soon as he secures his borders and defeats all his enemies, his personal life falls apart. And after that, his family falls apart. And with this whole turn of events, we begin to wonder, will this ever work? Will this Israel thing ever work? Will we ever have real lasting peace in Israel? And the answer for David and for ethnic Israel, national Israel, the answer is ultimately no. After his son Solomon's death, the kingdom will divide and both kingdoms will eventually face exile. I think there's evidence in the text that David saw this coming. Look again at verses 30 through 36. It's a strange interchange. David first gets the news that Absalom has killed all his sons and he tears his garments and mourns. His servants do the same. And then Absalom comes in and says, no, no, it's just Amnon. Just Amnon is dead. And he turns out to be right. And then they all mourn again. And you read that interchange and you think, okay, what's the point here? What's the takeaway? Fact check your sources. Uh, Check Snopes before you share that article on faith. No, don't do that. Don't check Snopes. And the Bible does say a lot about the need for carefulness and judgment, but I think something more is going on beneath the surface. It's striking that as soon as David hears a word of bad news, he falls apart. And we might have an explanation for that in chapter 12, which we read earlier. Listen again to what Nathan said to David. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Can you imagine hearing that read to you? I would love to hear someone speak to me most of the promises of God in scripture. I don't know about that one. And another thing, did you notice how many times God is mentioned in our text that we read? If I were teaching this in a kid's Sunday school class, I would not teach this in a kid's Sunday school class. But if I did, I would say, okay, count all the times you see the name God in our passage, and the winner gets candy. And they would look, and they would look, they would look, they would look, they would not find the name, the Lord, the God, anywhere. His name is not mentioned. So where is God in this story? 
He's fulfilling the word that he spoke through Nathan. And David knows it. Now we need to remember David has been forgiven for the sin that he had committed. He received that pardon as well. But that didn't mean the consequences wouldn't be averted. And if David had tried to manage the effects, tried to hedge everything in to keep everything together, he would have been up ultimately against the word of the Lord. And that's a sobering thought. It's a frightening thing when according to the will of God, sin will tear apart your household. So where does that leave us? Thankfully, none of us is in David's shoes, king of the nation, family is falling apart. But I hope, to some degree or another, you have felt this dilemma that David surely felt. That feeling of, I've done things I shouldn't have done, I've said things I shouldn't have said, and I can't undo them. I can't manage the consequences. I can't take it back. I can't ultimately control my sin. If you're in that dilemma now, or you've been there before, God would have you know that it is by his kindness that you realize that. And not only that, it is God's kindness that if you know there is no way for you to deal with your own sin, to make it right, you are in just the right spot to receive mercy. The Lord Jesus told a parable to this effect in Luke 18. Many of you are familiar with it. In it, two men go to pray. First is a Pharisee, right, the religious all-star of that time. And he goes to pray, and he essentially prays, God, thank you, I'm awesome. Thank you, I'm religious. And thank you that I tithe so much, and thank you I fast so much, and thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector prays, and uh, is a man who's, who's devoted his life, his career to theft and extortion and fraud and, and collusion with the enemy of God's people. And what does he pray? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because I've got no other option. I can't deal with my sin, so I have to ask for mercy. And he's the one that got it, but not the Pharisee, because he thought he could deal with the sin if he saw that he had any. God's message for us in this text is because sin grows out of control, we must deal with it here and now. Now, the only way we can hear that message, hear that call, and not be crushed, is if we also know that ultimately our sin has been dealt with. Lord Jesus himself has dealt with our sin past tense. And uh, that great doctrine of justification, the great exchange where, because of his work on the cross, he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. And we can also know Christ is dealing with our sin and sanctification because by his spirit, he is renewing our will, strengthening us to obey God, live a life of repentance. Finally, future tense, Christ will one day deal with not just our sin, but the sin of the world permanently. He'll return to to usher in an eternal age of peace where evil will never again threaten us. Now that peace is yet to come. David didn't see it ultimately in his life. We haven't seen it yet. Before the peace of heaven, we will still face the fallout from our sin, our friend's sins, the world's sin. That's the time we're in. But we also have the comfort of knowing that King Jesus is still on the throne And in spite of the news, in spite of what the pundits say, Christ is controlling all things by his providence. Our only call is to follow him. It will prove costly, it will prove painful, and it will prove difficult. But also by God's grace, it will prove fruitful. 
because the promises of God cannot fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. In providence, we thank you for the comfort of knowing that even this story, uh, a gut-wrenching story, uh, a horrible story, was mysteriously superintended by you for the good of David, for the good of us, for the good of Israel, for the good of all your people. We pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts. And Lord, may we indeed deal with sin. May we devote our lives to repentance, to obedience to your revealed world, for your word is good. And we give you praise that through it you have promised the ultimate victory that you have achieved and will solidify when Christ returns. May that day come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.